Good morning. My name is Sean. I'm, I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Church, as Ricardo said, and I'm really glad that you're here. 17 years ago today, it was actually November 6th, that's what today is, uh, November 6, 2005, that we met at the Holiday Inn in Brockton behind the old Dicks. Do you guys know where that Holiday Inn is in Brockton? Raise your hand. We were, we were really excited. We had 35 people show up, uh, which is great. In February of that year, we'd started a Bible study uh, as a result of our neighbors across the street having a friend go through a personal crisis. And she said, my neighbor knows God. You know, you need him. I'll be right back. And then my neighbor had said to her friend, you need to be in a Bible study. If Sean and Billy Jane started a Bible study in their house, would you go to it? And then she said, yeah. And then she goes, okay, Sean. So I was like, oh, crap. Well, now we got to start this Bible study. I was a volunteer pastor on the west side of the city. <clears throat> and I was a professor uh, up, up in Boston, but we started this Bible study for their friends. And nobody came to their first Bible study except for two of my college students and their girlfriends. Uh, Brian Buford, who's still on our staff now, he's our executive pastor, uh, and his, uh, his girlfriend, and then Mark Corona, and his girlfriend then, who's now his wife, and they work on staff with MANA, uh, which is a missions organization that we partner with to do all of our international compassion stuff. Um, and Brian's girlfriend broke up with him after the first week, so our church lost 17% of its membership between week one and week two. Now, Brian's trying to revise history. He says that it was mutual, but it wasn't. I was there. I remember. Now, it all worked out good for him. He ended up marrying a girl named Christy. She's a super sweetheart, if you know her. Uh, but our, our story isn't like, it, it got started there. Uh, but the story has become more than, than just, just our neighbors on Seaver Street in Stoughton. At some point along the way, it included you, and it probably had nothing to do with me at all. You had another friend that probably invited you who, who had experienced what God was doing in their life as a result of being a part of this church family. And now it takes hundreds of people every single week serving and volunteering and giving up time to take care of everybody else that God is bringing to himself through faith in his son Jesus here. And I just want to to acknowledge uh, everybody by name that volunteers. It'll take about 20 minutes. I got a list. I'm just kidding. Uh, but what I do want to say is if you, if you are on our first impressions team, if you're one of the volunteers that helps us get ready for everybody that shows up on the weekend, either in the parking lot or, or handing out the, uh, the programs when people walk in or doing the coffee in the lobby, if you're on the first, or, or the, first, the VIP people or the checking in people or walking them down or whatever, but if you're a first impressions uh, service team member, would you please raise your hand so the rest of us can say thank you for serving us well. Thank you guys very much. You guys rock. <clears throat> If you're in our, our worship or media team, maybe you're not scheduled this weekend. I know that the guys are in the booth also, uh, but you do, you do the lights or you do part of the production or anything like that. Would you raise your hand so that we can say thank you? A few of you guys also, thank you. Um, if you work in Grace Kids, right, like you're one of the rock stars that helps the rest of us parents raise our kids to become followers of Jesus, if you're one of the awesome volunteers in the kids ministry or in the student ministry, would you please raise your hand so that we can thank you? That's awesome. If you're a life group leader or a life group host, can you please raise your hand so we can say thank you to you guys also? See, 
funny thing is I can see your hands and you guys are all like being shy. You're just going like this. And I'm, everybody's looking around for you and no one can see you. And then the last group that I can think of is the weekday warriors. That's the people that they don't serve on the weekends, but they come Monday through Friday just to get everything ready. They set up signs out by the road so that people can find their way. And our church is at the end of a dead end street, which isn't really good, you would think. But because of those signs, we all found it today. Um, But they put together the packets for the first time and uh, some of the packets for the kids' classes. So if you're part of the Weekday Warriors, can you raise your hand? We can say thank you to you also. Anybody? Okay, it's a couple of you. Thank you. Awesome. They're very good. <clears throat> so there's a lot of you guys that weren't here 17 years ago. You know what else wasn't here 17 years ago? Stretchy jeans for boys. <laughs> My wife said they've had stretchy jeans for girls for decades. I just found stretchy jeans and they have changed my life. Does anybody have a pair of flexible jeans? Does anybody? Am I right in the name of Jesus? Somebody say amen. Woo! These things are from heaven. Oh my gosh, like I bought them right off the shelf, put them on. And I'm like, oh my gosh. It's like being in a hot tub. Naked. It's just, it's awesome. Sorry, I just had to get that out there. I'm just feeling really good in my stretchy jeans. I feel like doing something embarrassing. No, I'm not going to do that at all. What I do want to talk about, those are our motivation. Uh, all of us have motivations, and we're driven by different things. Some of us are motivated by the need to feel loved, and that's nothing. And I'm, nobody gets any shame for any of these motivations. These are all very real. Uh, and and they, they, I don't know on what percentage of our motivations are nature versus nurture, right? Genetic versus environment. Like, I, I'm, I'm not sure... It's probably a little bit of a combination of both, but some of us are driven by a need to feel loved. Some of us are driven by the need to feel valued. Some of us are driven by the need to be successful. None of those things are bad. Like I I think that whatever you're doing, you should want to be really good at it. It's just some people are driven by the need to be good at it and other people that, that's not necessary. I mean, you, you're, you want to be good at what you're supposed to do because you, maybe it's a sense of responsibility. Maybe you want to be known as a responsible person, right? So like you might end up doing the same thing, but it might come from a different place. Maybe you have a desire for adventure. I know that my son, who's 27, lives in Denver, Colorado, and he doesn't go hiking. He goes adventuring. That's what he calls it. Anybody ever heard that phrase before? They go adventuring. And he has an Instagram account that's beautiful. It's very aesthetically pleasing, and he won't put our, his family on there at all because because we'll mess up his feet. That's what he says. Like, uh, we'll mess up the vibe, right? But he and his wife, uh, Leslie, they go adventuring all the time. And so Garrett, it's not about the money he has in a bank account. It's about the memories that he'll have for life. Like, that's what, he, that's what he's all about, man. He's driven by the memories. He loves, he, he's the fun guy. Uh, that's, that's, that's Garrett. And if you want anybody to do anything crazy, uh, if somebody's got a camera, He'll be the first guy to jump up and do it. So he's driven, he's driven by fun. Some of you guys are driven by the need to make an impact in the world. Some of you guys are driven by significance. Uh, you don't have to be famous, but you want to do something that's meaningful, right? Like I, I just want, I want to play my part and I want to do a good job at that. But I think there's a darker side sometimes to our motivations. Uh, m- maybe your, maybe your motivation comes from a trauma in your childhood. And so that whole, that whole fight or flight thing is, is very big in the back of your head and you can, 
you've caught yourself making very big decisions that maybe you even later regretted. And then when you think consciously about the reason why you made that decision, it came from a motivation that was planted in you uh, because of a trauma as a kid, or maybe it was a loss of life. Uh, I, I know that when I was a small child, uh, experienced two deaths in a matter of four months that profoundly impacted me. And I was always afraid that the people closest to me were just going to die. So fear became a big motivator in my life as a child, or maybe it was a season of pain. And so you're like, you're motivated by the desire to avoid ever having to go through that again. So for you, it's not so much what you're doing as much as what you don't have to go through again. All of us, we have motivations is what we do. Maybe your motivations are aspirational. You've got a picture of the person that you want to be uh, and, and recognize, maybe you journal. And so you said, this is what I want to do by the time I'm 30. And you're almost 30. And like, that's motivating you because you're not that person yet. Or, you, you know, it's your 40s or your 50s or, you know, whatever decade you wrote down. Uh, maybe it was a retire at a certain age. And then, and then you're already past that age and you're nowhere near ready to retire. And so you're, you're very motivated by that. Maybe your motivations are more reactive. Uh, or, or maybe they're security-based. You, you, you're driven by doing the, the safe thing. Um, or, or maybe it's accomplishment-centered. All I want you to do before we get into the rest of the teaching is I want you to think uh, about the thing that drives you most. What would you say that that is? Like, what's the one word that you would draw, use to describe uh, the thing that motivates you more? Like, what are you driven by? That's what I'm asking. Like, what drives you? What pushes you? Like, when, you're, when, you, when you get stuck... Uh, when you can't get over the hump or when you've like entered into like a plateaued blah season of your life, what is it that gets you up and going again? That's the question I want to ask uh, because I just want to make sure that whatever is driving you is actually taking you to a place that you're going to want to get to. Uh, when I was 30, it was the year before we moved here to Boston. I was a youth pastor in Denver, Colorado. Uh, and and uh, um, I'm just going to tell you a story that changed the rest of my entire life. And I think about this guy four or five times a year. Um, but there's this guy that lived in Lakewood, Colorado. That's where I was at at the time. It's on the west side. Anybody know Lakewood? It's in the western suburb of Denver. No one? Okay. Um, if you drive through Denver and you go into the mountains, it's the last town you get to before you, on I-70 before you actually get up into the mountains, if anybody cares. But uh, So we lived in, in Lakewood. And there's a guy uh, named Dan who called the church and asked if one of the pastors could come by and see him. He was in hospice. And Dan owned this... Uh, the the gigantic acreage on the second busiest intersection in all of Lakewood um, at, at, at the time. I, I think it still is. Now it's all completely developed. It's all multi-unit multi, uh, housing. It's a large apartment complex, so his boys obviously sold that property, but Dan owned it, and uh, Dan was uh, very, very wealthy, had been married to the same girl uh, his whole life. He had three boys. All three of his boys married girls uh, that he and his wife absolutely loved. All three of his boys had, had kids, and so he had grandkids from all three of his sons. He was fabulously wealthy, and all three of his boys worked in the business with him. Like, that's every dad's dream, is that his kids would grow up and marry great people and be in a close relationship with him for the rest of his life and be able to keep the wife of your youth. I mean, not everybody gets that, I'm just saying, but he got, right? Like, that's a, that's a, that's a beautiful life. And uh, he's dying now, and so pastor asked me if I wanted 
pastor didn't ask if I wanted to go. Pastor said, get in the car, we're going. That's what pastor said, because his job is to mentor me. And these end-of-life conversations are important uh, things for pastors uh, to know how to handle. So I go pretty much to observe how pastor's gonna, gonna you know, just spend this time encouraging Dan uh, before he dies. And uh, so we walk into Dan's house. Hospice is not at the hospital or anywhere else at hospice facility because Dan's wealthy enough that hospice is coming to him. Furniture's out of the living room. It's just his hospital bed and some tables around the room. Uh, and then tons of family photos. So he's surrounded by everybody that he loves. And he's just a teeny tiny man laying in the bed, but I can see pictures of him. He was a beast of a human being, but cancer had just, just eaten away at his body. And I, like, I, I feel like I could have curled him, right? Like he, he was that frail. Uh, and, then, and then he's just telling pastor his story. Uh, and apparently Dan had grown up in a Christian family and had committed to faith in Jesus when he was a senior in high school. Um, and then like a lot of us, uh, once he graduated high school and went to university, he kind of left his faith in his past and uh, never really brought it up again or went back to church ever again, even though he personally had truly become a, a, a follower of Jesus, a, a Christian. He, he really had, because there were multiple times uh, as an adult over the decades where he felt that little twinge in his heart that he needed to get back and maybe even to talk to his boys and, and his wife about this, but he just never did because it's almost like it's, it's kind of like it's too late, right? Like, like, so he goes to university. He gets married to this sweet girl, she doesn't know he's a Christian. She, she's not a Christian at all. They, they start their auto body business. Uh, he's got all of this property that, that he owns, and it's got the body shop on it, and he raises his sons, and they're all in Little League, and he's doing all the dad things that dads want to do with their boys, and they grow up, never been to church or anything like that. It wasn't ever a part of their life. And then Dan starts crying uncontrollably, like, like, like heaving, sobbing, like can't breathe kind of cry. Um, and like, you know, uh, like body shop guys don't do this. You know, that, that's not the thing. And so he's embarrassed also, and, but he can't stop crying. And pastor reaches out his hand and puts his hand on his arm and just tells him, you know, Dan, get a breath. Like, take, breathe, dude, breathe, breathe. Deep breath, deep breath, deep breath. And then um, it takes him, and then he'd start to talk and then he'd start crying again. Well, he's got my attention 100% because like, it sounds like he's got this beautiful life, right? He's got everything. And then, and then he said this, and, it's, it's, and I think it's pretty close to exactly what he said, uh, and I, I have it written down. I just I want to I want to read you what, what Dan said, uh, because when Dan said this, uh, and uh, well, then I'll, I'll read it for you, and then I'll tell you my first thought, because I still remember exactly what I thought. Uh, but here's what Dan said. Uh, Dan said, I've wasted my entire life. I have everything I've ever wanted, and now I will lose all of it and every one of them, because I never told them the most important thing about me, and now it's too late. And this is what he said. I wish I could go back and do my life all over again. And you can't. And then he died like a week later. When Dan said, I wish I could go back and do my whole life all over again, and he's bawling, and he's filled with nothing but regret. Like, I didn't listen to anything. Like, I, don't, I have no idea what pastor said to him after that. Like, what would you say after that? <clears throat> like, how do you give somebody hope when they realize that they wasted the only life they get? You only get one, Right? And then to get to the end and realize that you did all the wrong things. Like, can you imagine anything worse than that? Like, I, I can't. Like, I remember sitting there at the edge of the bed next to pastor. Pastor was on my left. I'm right here. I was actually closer to Dan than he was, so pastor was reaching across. I'm just, it's the memory I have, right? So I just remember praying, dear God in heaven, don't let me become a Dan. 
I, like, to get to the end of my life and have nothing but regret would be the worst way to finish your life. Life is short and eternity is long. You get one shot to live your one life and nobody gets a do-over. Like for some of us, we're halfway over. Like I'd, I'm 52. Some of you guys think that that's really old. Dang it, I am in the prime of sexy. <laughs> this is it. <clears throat> this is <laughs> Forbes had an article came out earlier this year. You know the most productive decade of your life? You know the most productive, assuming you have good health, you know what the most productive decade of your life is? Your 70s. I know. (laughs) If you have your health, and the reason why is because you know everybody you need to know and you don't care about any of the bull anymore. Like all you do is get crap done and you get the right crap done. Look, Google it. Most productive decade in Forbes. You'll pull up the article. I couldn't remember that it was Forbes and I brought this up last night and I said, somebody please Google that so I don't have to do the homework and I can just go home and go to bed. And somebody stopped listening to the rest of the sermon. They Googled it. They walked up to me afterwards and told me that was Forbes. I said, thank you very much. So I'm in my 50s and I told Billy Jane yesterday, I feel like I'm just now getting into my prime. I really do. So those of you guys who are in your 30s or 40s, you think this is the prime years of your life and it's not. You're still trying to figure out what's most important and truthfully, you're wasting most of your 30s. You are chasing all kinds of crap that Dan realizes was the wrong stuff to to chase. Worrying about all the stuff that doesn't matter to nothing, right? Right? It's not until you get older that you start realizing, holy crap, I wish I'd spent less time at the office and more time at the baseball field with my kid. But now your kids are already teenagers and they don't want to spend time with you because they got the driver's license and you realize you just lost your kid's golden years. So you determine you're going to be a better father, but now they don't know you and they don't want to spend as much time with you as you want to spend time with them now that you're in upper management and you finally have the flexible time and that's because you weren't available for them when they needed your time more. Sorry, I just made about half the dudes in here feel really bad. (laughs) But it's true. But here's the verse that sticks in my head. I can't let it go. It's encoded in my heart. This is the thing that drives me. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And just as each person is destined to die, after that comes judgment. That's it. Everybody is destined to die. That is 100% true for 100% of the people in this room. Every single one of us are going to die. And after that, we have to give an account. And I think about that all the time. Here's the scariest thing about death. It's not that I'm going to die. It's that I have an appointment with it that God didn't tell me. Like there's an expiration date. The Bible says the boundaries in which you dwell in the time of your habitation was established by God before he laid the foundations of the earth. That means that there's, not, there's nothing about your life that's an accident. Uh, your existence, I mean. Like where and when you live was planned by God before he said, let there be light. You didn't come up with the idea of you. You didn't choose to be born. You know this. God chose that for you. There might have even been other times where your mom and dad came together and no baby came as a result of that. Why? Because it wasn't you. But that time a baby did come Because God intended you to exist. 
Like you're not an accident and you don't even belong to you. Everything, like you're borrowed. Your life is a gift that's given to you temporarily and then it will be handed back to the one who gave it to you. So God gives you this life and everything that you've done with your life since then is only because you've leveraged what God already put in your tool bag. Your personality, your gifts, your abilities, your looks, right? Your skills, the talent, your natural, like your aptitude, your intelligence, your IQ, all of, I, I know it's the same thing, but all of these things are just resources that God gave you. And so nobody here is even a self-made man. Like you could have been born with cerebral palsy, like one of my buddies, Scott Anderson, but you weren't. Who chose that for you? You didn't choose not to be born blind, not to be born deaf. You didn't choose not to be born crippled. Like it's a gift and you have to hand this back. And then you give an account of what you did with it to the one who gave it to you. That's a very sobering thought. And I'm not trying to be morbid, although some of you guys are like, it's a little morbid. It's a little bit. It's a little bit. Happy birthday! We're all gonna die! <laughs> my dad, awkwardly, after the birthday song, my dad would go, Happy birthday, happy birthday. People dying everywhere, deep gloom and deep despair, but happy birthday, happy birthday. Anybody have a dad like that, or is that. Just my dad that ruined my life. Nobody else's dad ruined their life. Okay. Solomon says it's wise for us to think about this. He says, this is what, this is what the wise do. I want you to see it. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2. He says, it's better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. And if you had a choice between a funeral and party this week and everybody here would choose a party. Solomon just says, but that's not the one that's actually good for you. It's fun for you. It's just not good for you. It doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't make your life into something better. Parties don't do that. Funerals do that. How? After all, he says, everyone dies. So the living should take this to heart. He says, that's what a funeral does. A funeral forces you to face the fact that you have a limited time. Why is that good for you? Because it causes you to reevaluate where you're at. It's like the GPS on your cell phone. When you're in the car and you miss your turn, what does it do? Rerouting, rerouting. Parties don't reroute. Well, parties reroute. They take you off the path. They don't put you on it. Funerals help you, if you're off the path, get back on it. That's why Solomon said funerals are better. Because they, they're course correcting. That's what they are. A funeral reminds you you don't have forever to reconcile with your, your mom and dad. A funeral reminds you that you won't always get to say you're sorry or offer that forgiveness or tell that person that you loved them or, or make amends or to get your life back on track and, or to stop just being an idiot. You've been to a funeral where you reconsidered the direction your life was going in and that's all Solomon's talking about. He said these things are really good for us. It's good for us to go to funerals because everybody dies so the living should take this to heart. He says sorrow is better than laughter. Because sadness has a refining influence on us. Like it's, it's good for us to consider whether or not we're wasting our life. And if you feel remorse over that, that is a genuinely good emotion. That's an appropriate emotion to have. 
because it refines you. It, it, it corrects your direction is what it does. It, it redirects you. And then he says this, <clears throat> a wise person thinks a lot about death. And fools only think about having a good time. Remembering that we all someday will look back on our lives is a great reminder today of what we should prioritize most. And that'd be a good thing for all of us to do, whether you're religious or not. It'd be a really good thing. Here's what sucks. The older you get, the faster time goes and the less you have of it. Have you, have you noticed that? Like think back to when you were in third grade. Anybody remember third grade? Anybody in third grade? What grade? He's elementary school, middle school? No, he's older. I can tell he's older. <clears throat> right. When you're in third grade, remember after Christmas and you had to go back to school? Remember before Christmas? You're like, see you next year. Remember everybody saying that? Because you're going to see him after the new year? That was fun. Um, if you're saying that now, you're, stay away. You're weird. <laughs> but then January gets here and you're like, it's never going to be summer. It's never going to be summer. It's so far away. And then when summer finally gets there, and then you're out of school, you're like, I don't have to go back to school forever. Summer is awesome. It's forever long. This is so long. It's great. And now summers go by that fast, right? Remember when you said, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be in ninth grade. And now you're already a junior in high school? Like it came that fast. Or some of you guys are like, I'm never going to graduate. And now you're already out of college and you still don't know what you're going to do with your life. <laughs> right? It like just flies. Here's the crappy thing. It goes faster the older you get. Remember the second picture in that video bumper right before Ricardo came out to pray? You see that picture of me, Billy Jane, and our three kids? Two of them are married now. I still think I look like that. <laughs> I do in my head. I look exactly like that. I'm like, yeah, that's me. Everybody's like, who's that guy with your wife? <laughs> it's my much younger, sexier brother. But the older you get, the faster time goes and the less time that you have to do the stuff that's most important. And that's why the 70-year-olds are the smartest ones in here. They don't, they don't waste their time with crap anymore. Uh, this verse le leads me to reconcile with my wife sooner. I don't, I don't put off making things right with Billy Jane. Because I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to make it. None of us know if we're going to make it tomorrow. And, and, and that's the thing. You, in your teens and 20s, like, you, you feel like a Marvel character, man. Like, like you're going to live forever and like you're bulletproof. And the truth is, you're bulletproof until the day you die. So don't live in fear either. You know what I mean? Like there's already an appointment. Like I, God knows my expiration date and I'm not going to change that. I'm bulletproof until then. So I don't have to live scared. You know what I mean? I ain't going to die until I die. And when I'm going to die, I'm not going to be able to extend it one day beyond that anyway. So I don't have to live in fear, right? I'm like, I'm, I'm going to live... I almost used a phrase that would only be appropriate in a locker room, but I'm going to live pedal, pedal to the metal, right? Like I'm, 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 I'm not going to be afraid either, but I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to waste time. I'm not guaranteed. And that's the thing. I don't know if it's tonight. I don't, I can, we've all heard of some random healthy person that jogs all the time who dies of a heart attack, right? Which is the reason why I don't exercise. <laughs> Hey, I ain't stupid. I ain't stupid. I hear those stories all the freaking time. 
It's ding-dongs and hostess cupcakes for me, baby. Right? Homeboy's going to enjoy his days on this earth. In the name of Jesus, somebody say hallelujah. There you go. Twinkies in Jesus' name. But it's that verse that you don't get any do-overs, that you're going to die, that you're going to wish at some point you'd lived your whole life differently, that causes me to live my life better now. It's the reason why I didn't have a problem leaving work early to go coach each one of my kids in Little League sports. Right? I could have made more money doing other things. You put a side hustle on hold because you're taking care of your kids. We just remodeled our kitchen. We bought the real estate books say to buy the crappiest house on a nice street. We won. It is the crappiest house on a nice street. And we just now, after 21 years, remodeled the kitchen. My kids said, why didn't you do this when we lived at home? I said, because you were taking all my stupid money. <laughs> right? So now they're gone. Finally, <laughs> I want a hot tub next year. Every year, I'm going to keep adding stuff that they don't get to use. <laughs> yeah, baby. Yeah. That's how you get your grandkids to come back home. You pimp out your backyard. That's what you do. But this motivates me to call my parents more frequently. Early on in pandemic, there was a, a, a podcast that we were listening to. Some of you, it, it got shared. I don't know. It got liked hundreds, maybe millions of times. You probably, you may have seen it. Some of you, I'm sure you have. Uh, but there's this guy being interviewed. And so the, the, the guest on the show says to the host of the show, he says, well, how much, time, how much time do you have left with your dad? And he goes, I've got plenty of time. He said, well, how much time? He's like, I don't know. He's in his mid-70s, probably another 10, 15 years. He said, well, let's just call it 10 years. How often do you see your dad? He says, uh, once a year. He says, you don't have 10 years left with your dad. You're going to see your dad 10 more times, and then you'll never see him again. I made the mistake of showing that to my wife, whose dad is 80. And so now, and we, we only see him once a year. And let's say, and he is, he's, man, that guy's as healthy as a horse, man. He's, he's an 80-year-old horse, but dang it, he's a, he's a freaking horse. Slobbers, he stinks, the whole bit. <laughs> Just kidding, that's not true. It's not, one of those is true. I'm not going to say which one, but, um, but then, but we, we go down to Florida. That's where he lives in Lakeland. And so we go there once a year. But recognizing that time is short is causing us to reprioritize. And Billy Jane's, we've already put it in a budget. She's going down there three times a year to see her dad. But that's, that's the value of recognizing how little time you have and that there's no do-overs is it causes the most important stuff to float to the top real fast. That's why it's wise to think about death. Like some of you, and I don't know who, just in a room this size. Some of you won't make it to 50 you know what's weird? You don't know it's you. Isn't that crazy? Which means that you need to stop wasting your freaking life. Like everything matters, and it matters way more than you think it does. Way more than you think it does. Because if you keep living like you're living, you're going to be in a room of hospice, and you're going to be calling a local preacher, and you're going to say, I wish I could go back and do it all over again. Like, you're going to end up being Dan. And the only way you don't end up da- by, by ending up... Finish that sentence the right way in your head. <laughs> is by changing the direction and the way you're living your life now. That's the only way. It's the verse, this is the verse that became the beginning of this church. Is that you get one life. That's it. And I want, I want this passage of Scripture, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and Hebrews chapter 9, 
I want that to be the beginning of a new adventure, a new journey with the direction of the rest of your life also. Jesus gives us two metaphors to help us compare the way that we live our lives now versus the way that we'll live our lives in eternity in Matthew chapter 13. Verse 44, he says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. Now, the kingdom of heaven is the way that God sees all of eternity. You and I see our just one little life and everything that we're chasing. He says, but the kingdom of heaven is so much bigger. Like you're playing a part like that Maximus Aurelius. Does anybody remember that great Christian movie, Gladiator? Who's seen Gladiator? Raise your hand. All right. He says before that really big battle with the Gauls of the north, right? He says, if you find yourself riding through the fields of Elysium, do you remember that speech? He says, because what we do today echoes for all of eternity. Like that was the line that I was like, oh, pause the movie. I need to think about that. Because what we do today echoes for all of eternity. When we recognize that the life that you're living now has permanent consequences that you will either enjoy or regret for all of eternity, then you start seeing a bigger picture of the kingdom of heaven. Then you recognize that life isn't just what happens between now and my casket. But between now and my casket is the staging area for the rest of my existence in the presence of God and other people who are also followers of Jesus. Like there's a real eternity that is just, like right now I'm physically alive, but spiritually Bible says that we're alive. But like looking, we look at spiritual realities through like a foggy bathroom mirror, right? Because of our sin nature, we don't see spiritual realities clearly. But he says, but then in eternity, we will know as we are known. Like right now, you only get to experience half of all there is to experience. We only experience the physical. And we get glimpses, whispers of the spiritual realities. But in eternity, it'll be 100% physical, 100% spiritual. It'll be more real than what we're experiencing now. Like more. That's the kingdom of heaven. The realization that this is the staging area. This isn't the main event. Like this is a title. Like this is the, what is it? The the card, the title, the the pre-fights, what are those called? The undercards, right? This is the undercard for the, for the main event. Thank you, whoever said that. That was, that was very helpful. <clears throat> but the kingdom of heaven, the main event, is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid again, and he sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy that field. Like he, he recognized that the main event was the main event, and this is just the undercard. So he went and he leveraged the entire undercard to make sure that he had a better big event. That's smart. The next verse. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned to buy that bigger pearl. In both stories, the merchant sells everything in pursuit of the kingdom of heaven. And all Jesus is wanting you to do is to play a longer game because you can spend your life or you can invest your life. And every single day is like a dollar that you either get to spend or invest. And Jesus says, the wise man trades every single day he can for the kingdom of heaven. And that's the legacy that you want for the life that you live. The big idea behind this series is that each of us wants to make some kind of a difference with our lives. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think that that's the ghost or an imprint of the spirit of God in your life. I think that we are creating the image of God. Animals are thinking about survival. We're the ones who are thinking about legacy. That's not a normal thing, right? Like this is something that God put in us. Like the Bible says that God put eternity in the hearts of man. And that's true about all, study study anthropology, the study of different human cultures. 
They've all known that there was more than just this. The Bible says that God put that instinct in each one of us so that we would begin to start reaching out for him. That's what the scripture says. And we want to do something that matters because you were created for something that matters. Like you're not an animal. Like you're not just an evolved creature, species. You are created in the image of God. You are both physical and spiritual. Angels, purely spiritual. Animals, purely physical. You and me, the image of God. We're both. We have a body and a soul. And it's that soul part of us that wants something more than freaking paper. Right? That's, that's legacy. Like something that matters beyond just me. Because I want to leave something behind more than just money for my kids to fight about. Right? I, I want the kingdom of heaven to be different, to like, I don't have to make it, but let me get my thumbprint in the cement before it hardens. Like, that was a weird, I went thumbprint, and then I went with wet cement, that's more of a handprint, and so I mixed up metaphors. But a legacy is what we've done that survives us. It's the return on investment that we make with the lives that we live. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus said this, Don't store up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. That's spending your life. That's not investing it. He says, store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Because wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart, that's where the desires of your heart will be also. God has given you this one glorious, beautiful life. Breathe in. That's awesome. Like you get that. Take another one. Like you get this beautiful, amazing life. To do with it, whatever you want. And then someday, you give it back. And then he tells you how you did. That drives me. I want him to say, kid, you rocked the freaking heck out of that. And I want to say, dang, Skippy. That was amazing. I don't want to go. I wasted it. I wish I could get a do-over. Paul talks more about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. He said, because of God's grace given to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it. But whoever builds on this foundation must be very careful how you build. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that we already have, which is Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to stop right there just to kind of catch you up with the context. For the sake of time, we didn't read the whole chapter, but you can do that at a later time if you want. You can write it down. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Jesus had referenced the idea of a foundation and us building on it also. But in this metaphor, your, your life is like a house that you're building. And every day, it's just, right, all in all, we're just another brick. Thank you. Awesome. More people in this service than last night. All right, let's try that again. All in all, you're just another brick. Whoa, that was awesome. All the old people represent in church today. And all the young people who like great music on YouTube, right? 
Oh, yes, Pink Floyd. They had no idea they'd be referenced in a church service today, right? Um, but every single day is another brick that you're laying, right? It's like an- another brick. And Jesus says, those who hear these teachings of mine and do them are people who are building their house on a, on, on a rock, on a foundation. But those who hear these teachings of mine and don't obey them are building their house on sand. There's only one foundation. There's only one rock that you can build your life on. I'll explain that in just a second. And then Jesus says that the storm, the rains fall, the winds blow, and the floods rise on both houses. But the only house that survives the storm is the one that's built on the rock. And in the same way, the Apostle Paul says there's only one foundation you could build your life on. And be careful how you build on it. And now everybody's building a house. You just might not have a foundation. And the reason why we know that Jesus is the only foundation is because Jesus is the only one who's ever lived without ever breaking God's laws or being selfish towards his fellow man. He's the only person who's never sinned. And that's not a condemnation of any of the other world religions. It's not. It really isn't. Because if you have a Muslim friend, they'll admit to you that they can't say that Muhammad never sinned because he did, right? They know that he broke God's laws. They'll say that he's a prophet of God, but they, so they obviously don't, don't, don't talk bad about him, but they, they, they won't say that Muhammad never broke God's laws or was selfish towards his fellow man. And our Jewish friends don't believe that Abraham or Moses never broke God's laws which means that every single one of those founders of those world religions will stand before God and have, a give, have to give an account for their sin also. Like there's no one to take my place because I've broken God's laws and you've broken God's laws. All of us stand before God is guilty. So the only way that I can be exempt from God's judgment for the sin that I've committed is if somebody who is innocent would be willing to take my place because only the innocent can take the place of somebody who's guilty. That's the reason why we need Jesus. Jesus is the only person who's ever lived without breaking God's laws and being selfish towards his fellow man. He's the only one. Now, if Jesus is just a man, then one man's life is worth how many other people's lives? One. But if Jesus is who the prophet Isaiah said he would be, that to us a child would be born, to us a son would be given. And the name of this child, this baby boy, would be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. So if this baby boy, Jesus, is God in the flesh, then how many people's lives is God's life worth? All of them. That's the reason why you need Jesus. You don't need Christianity. You need Jesus. That's what you need. All right. So Jesus lays down his life. And the only people who are in exemption from sin are those who accept the only innocent person that offered to take your place. So everybody that has that foundation has a relationship with God because of Jesus' righteousness, not because of your own. So when I stand before God, I put on Jesus' clean robe because Jesus took off my dirty robe and put my dirty robe on himself. So I stand before God in Christ's righteousness, the Bible says, and that's how I'm made right with God. Paul says, but you keep living after that, don't you? He says, you're still building your life after that. So he says, be careful what material you use. That's the next verse. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials. You can use gold, silver, jewels, or wood, hay, and straw. But on the judgment day, this is the judgment for those of us who have Jesus as the foundation, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done, and the fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, so you're building your life, every day you've got another day. Every day you're either building with wood, hay, or straw, or you're building with gold, silver, or precious jewels. Every day I'm building with something. And throughout the day, I'm making multiple choices that are either for God's glory and the good of others, either based on the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of Sean. I'm either spending my life, wood, hay, straw, or I'm investing my life, gold, silver, precious stones. And on the day of judgment, God's going to take the building of my life 
and he's going to try the whole thing by fire. And everything that was wood, hay, and straw is completely burned up. I'm not punished, I'm not punished for my wood, hay, and straw because who was punished for me? Who was punished for me? Jesus. So I'm not punished for my sin because Jesus was punished for my sin. I'm judged on whatever gold, silver, and precious jewels are left. I'm not judged for my sin. Jesus is judged for my sin. Back at it. If the work survives, that would be the gold, silver, precious jewels. If the, if the work survives, the builder will receive the rewar- a reward. What's the reward? Whatever gold, silver, and jewels that are left. That's what Jesus says. Store your treasures in heaven. He says, build with gold, silver, and precious jewels. Don't build with wood, hay, and straw. Like, because that's all where robbers can steal and where moth and rust corrupt. He said, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths don't corrupt and the rust does not corrupt and, and thieves cannot break in and steal. That's the treasure that remains. That's the kingdom of heaven that's worth trading everything now for. That's what this is. But if the work is burned up, let's say that they didn't build with, let's say that you have the foundation, but you didn't build with any gold, gold, silver, or precious jewels. And the entire house, when tried by fire, the whole thing is burnt up and you have nothing to show for your life. Do you go to hell? Look what it says. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved though. Why would the builder be saved? Because he had the what? Because he had the foundation. The foundation is what Jesus is what saves me, not my good deeds. My good deeds matter because my good deeds, they don't determine where I go when I die, but they do determine how I spend that time when I die. So everybody who's a follower of Jesus, everybody who's placed their faith on that one foundation, Jesus, when we die, we enter eternity in the exact same place, in the presence of God with everybody else who made the same decision. But how we spend eternity is completely unique based on the decision that we made on this side of eternity. Remember, Jesus said, if you're faithful with little here, you'll be faithful with much then. But if you're faithful with little here, I'm also going to make sure that you only have a little to be faithful with then. So how we spend eternity is completely different, even if where we spend eternity is the same. So while everyone has, who has the foundation goes to the same place, what we take with us is unique to the choices that we made. Because that verse says, the fire will show if a person's work has any value. So if we really did believe what the Bible said was true, we'd live differently. We would. We'd think differently. We'd give differently. We'd love differently. We'd forgive differently. We'd serve differently. And I think the problem with the American church, and I don't, the problem with those of us who are in church here in America is that we're no different in substance than than anybody else. We're motivated by the same things as everybody else around us. You and I are both motivated. Look at our TikTok feeds. Look at our Instagram accounts. Look at the books that we read. We're all motivated by the accumulation of wealth, just like everybody else. We're motivated by the gratification of our ego and the satisfaction of our pride. And the danger in this is that it's robbing us of the legacy that we're actually going to care most about on the other side of eternity. There's only one thing that crosses from this side to the other side when you die, and it isn't money. It's people. That's what gets to go with you. People. 
According to that study that came out in March of 2021, and I've talked about it a lot here at Grace Church because it feeds into, and somebody set their timer so that I would shut up. <laughs> We're almost there. You can go ahead and silence that alarm. The top five least religious states, according to the study that came out in March 2021, top five least religious states in America. Number one least religious state in America is Massachusetts. Number two is New Hampshire. Number three is Connecticut. Number four is Maine. And number five is Vermont. Rhode Island is the only New England state not in the top ten. But we're one through five least religious. Here's what that means. That more people per person in New England will spend eternity separated from God in hell than anywhere else in America. And that drives me. Because these aren't just stats. These are your best friends. These are the people you've known since middle school. They're your neighbors on Seaver Street. They went to high school with you in Brockton. They work with you. You ride, you ride with them in the train every day. That's who these people are. Yeah, to Barna, they're just a... T- 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 Sorry. I had way too much communion wine before I came out here. <laughs> to Barna, they're just a... S- s- number. <laughs> they're just a number. But to you and me... They're our cousins. They're real people. Like how many towns within 30 minutes of here have church buildings that are empty and you wouldn't go to them because they're dead? Yes or no? So all the 25,000 people that live in that town don't have access to a healthy, life-giving, Jesus-centered church that's going to call them to repent of their sins and be reconciled to God before they stand before God and regret not doing it. But all we care about is more money, more money, more money, more money, more money. I want more money. I want more money. I want more fame. I want more recognition. I want more respect. I, 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 and I struggle with it too. I'm sorry. I'm crying. And so skeptics think I'm manipulating. So I'm going to say a fart joke to loosen the mood. I'm not. I'm just kidding. Saying that was enough. But these people aren't stats. They're my friends. And if they live the rest of this life disconnected from God... They enter eternity the same way. And you and I never think about that. Because we're distracted like Dan. And we're going to end up like Dan. Each person hears an amazing story of redemption. Every person baptizes another person who lets go of the life that they lived before Jesus. So I'm thankful for every single year of our church's history. And I am thankful for all of the other churches in the area that are faithfully preaching the scriptures and calling people to repent of personal sin and place their faith and trust in Jesus, the only one who can forgive them for their sin. But bro, we are just getting started. 
Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And I think when Jesus looks at New England, he's moved with compassion because our friends are confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he said to his disciples in response to this, the harvest is great. And he called the people a harvest, like a big field, like a wheat field. The people, New England is a wheat field, but the workers are few. Christians who are actually focused on people who are far from God are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into the field. Do you realize, if I'm not mistaken, and I don't think I am, this is the only thing that Jesus told his disciples they had to pray for. Even the Our Father, he didn't say pray this, he said pray like this. They said teach us how to pray. He says, all right, use this as an example. He didn't say you had to pray the Our Father. Now, if you pray the Our Father, there's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus didn't say you had to pray the Our Father. He said, pray like this. Use that like a template, like a pattern, right? The only thing he said you had to pray for was for more people to help more people turn back to God. Why? Because that's what God's thinking about all the time. That's all he's thinking about. That's all he's thinking about. As the number of you who are in this service right now who are still disconnected from him because your pride won't let you admit that you have sinned against God and you need forgiveness. That's all he's thinking about. As my actual friends on Seaver Street and Stoughton who are still disconnected from him, that's all he's thinking about. My buddies from Little League, the guys I play against in Old Man League basketball on Thursday night. By the way, two weeks ago I had 26 points. Boom, baby. Tell you, your 50s, that's the decade right there. That's peak male performance right there in your 50s. I only had 12 two nights ago, but we're not going to talk about that night. But that God, God prayed for more people to help more people turn back to God. The only thing you get to take with you when you die is everyone that your life helped reconcile with God before they died. What better thing than to spend all of eternity, which will be just as physical as this is, plus just as spiritual as this is physical, with everybody that you actually loved and cared about? How cool is it going to be because you helped build an orphanage somewhere or a feeding center in conjunction with one of our mission projects for a little kid to walk up and say, I heard your church was the one that did that and you were part of your church. I wouldn't be here for all of eternity if your church hadn't helped us. How cool would it be for that guy that you bump into occasionally that you grew up with? Someday you invite that guy to Christmas or Easter service, which 85% of non-religious people actually do go to church on Christmas and Easter if a friend invites them. They show up and they do reconcile to God. For all of eternity, they come up to you and say, every time I see you here in heaven, I feel like I got to thank you. I'm so glad you brought me with me, brought me with you back then. I wouldn't be here without you. Like, is anything better than that? Like, that's, that's the legacy. It's living my life so as to cast a long shadow over all of eternity. The legacy that matters most isn't the money in your bank account, the number of people who know your name or the buildings that will be named after you. It's that New England no longer is far from God. So Grace Church isn't done because there's no room for... If a family of four walked in right now, we would make them come and sit all the way up here on the front row because there's no room for them to sit anywhere else, which is the reason why I need about 100 of you to start coming on Saturday nights. Because from now until Christmas, it's going to be like this every Sunday. That's a good thing. Is that, that's a great thing. 
right? But I really do need, and first-timers are more likely to come on a Sunday than a Saturday. So those of you guys who are Christians, who do have flexible schedules, if you can be here next Saturday at 5, that would be awesome. And that service is starting to get a lot more full, too, because of the number of people that are doing it. I'm just saying, we're not done because this one room has, has people in it. Because we don't measure the success of our church by the number of butts and seats, but by the number of our friends whose butts still ain't here. Because this isn't about putting a crowd together on Sunday morning. This is about helping our actual friends who are disconnected from God reconcile to God before they meet them face to face. How many of you guys have a friend that you genuinely love and care about who's disconnected from God? Raise your hand. If you know somebody disconnected from God that you can, keep your hand up. We will be done when there are no more hands raised to that question. That's when we're done. Because every person you thought of when your hand was up as a person, that is disconnected from God. And if they live the rest of this life disconnected from God, they enter eternity the same way. Disconnected from God. For all of eternity in hell. And that is not what God wants. Which is the reason why he put you in their life. Pray for God to reach them all you want. He already started answering that prayer when you became their friend. When you got the job where they work. When you graduated from the same school they graduated from. By God's grace, we've planted nine churches. Four of those are still grace churches. Five of them are not. We've helped about 25 other churches get started. We're thankful to God for that also. But still, all five states of New England are the top five least religious states in the country. So what we want to do is, starting at least with the four churches that are still grace churches, we want to start one church every four years. Now, this church has started one church every three years, and then we started starting one church every two years. Now it looks like we're starting one church a year. So it goes faster as time goes, which is great. But there are a whole lot of towns around here that still don't have one life-giving, healthy, Jesus-focused church. Am I right? Yes or no? So we got a crap ton of more churches that we need to get started because it's never just been about us. It's about the kingdom of God and more people getting reconciled to God through faith in his son, Jesus. So if each one of our four churches starts one church every four years, I want to show you a graph. At year four, we'll have eight. That's just four years from now. Eight years from now, there'll be 16. Now, some of these will be grace churches. Some of them won't. We don't care because this is not about spreading our brand. Don't care about that at all. When they start the church, if they want to stay a grace church, they can stay a grace church. If they don't want to be a grace church, we don't care. This isn't about control because if it's about control, this isn't going to happen anyway. We need to let these suckers fly. All right. At year 14, there'll be 32. Year 16, 64. That'll be about the time when I go off the stage unless my expiration date is sooner. And if my expiration date is sooner, don't tell me. At year 20, great. Now, here's the awesome thing that we're, there's already about 30 pastors, 30 church planters in around the Boston area that are already thinking about this. So we're actually starting closer to where year 14 is than where we're, I'm just saying, even if these other churches don't do it, and it's just us uh, starting at year four, but keep going, look at the next graph. The next pastor gets to, listen, and I know this is stupid math. Listen, I, I, I know, I'm just saying, if you aim at nothing, you hit it every time, Right? And if we aim for four years and we don't start a church until five years, I call that a pretty successful failure. Would you guys agree? All right, we actually started saying that we would start a church every other year. We failed. We didn't start our first church until year three, not year two. So we failed. But that's a good failure. Then it was every three. Then it started feeding up. So some of these churches won't start any other churches, but some of them will start a lot more than 20 churches. I'm just saying, but if every church we start knows from day one, you've got four years to start another church in another town. What that means is some of you guys will not be in this church four years from now because you're going to help us start a church in a town that's closer to where you actually live 
because that's what's better for your neighbors. And you pick the church not based on which church has the better music or the funnier preacher. It's on which church would give my actual neighbors the best chance to know and to follow Jesus. Does that make sense? But in year 36, hopefully I'm alive, but this isn't about whether I'm alive or not. This doesn't matter because the church isn't mine, it's ours. Who gets more credit? The person who tells them how to follow Jesus or the person who's been loving on them for years that earned their respect, that became their best friend, who risked their reputation to invite them to a Christmas Eve service. They came to faith in Jesus at the Christmas Eve service. You took them out to lunch the next week and asked them how they're doing spiritually and what they thought. And you helped them follow Jesus after they had become a follower of him, after they had become a Christian. You see what I'm saying? Like it's a tag team effort. Everybody's got a part to play. Which part is more important? Neither. They're all equal. You have a part to play in this church family. I have a part to play in this church family. And dang it, both of us better do our freaking job. And if we do, if we do, by God's grace, can you imagine if there were 2,048 churches because there's only 1,527 towns in New England? That means for those of you in your 30s and 40s, you're going to be alive to see a third spiritual great awakening in New England and all five states come off the list. But none of this happens if you don't do something. Everybody matters, and every day matters. Every conversation matters. Every train ride matters. Every phone call, every breakfast at Beantown Diner. Everything matters. Every trick-or-treater, every Little League game every choice to work overtime, every choice to have a barbecue and who you're going to invite. And if you only invite Christians, God help you. They're already saved, dang it. And I don't care about offending Christians. I mean, I do. I don't want to be a jerk. Sometimes I am a jerk, but don't talk to my kids. But if you offend a Christian, they go to another church. If you offend a person far from God, they go to hell. So I know who I don't want to offend. Right? Like everything matters. It all matters. Which is the reason why you need to spend time every day praying for your actual friend you thought of when you raised your hand. Every day. You need to spend your money differently. You need to invest in the kingdom of God. Because one location, Grace Church, we can't do this without you. Some of you need to become pastors. Some, all of you guys need to get your butt in a game, put on a jersey, get on the field and get dirty. Don't get your... God help you if you get on the bus on the way back to heaven and your football pants ain't got grass stains. Only bench warmers know that pain. We need to put God first in our finances. We need to adjust our calendar to make room to serve the body of Christ with our time and our talent. We need to reconcile with our spouse. We need to come home, work early, and pastor and shepherd our own children. We need, to, uh, we need to be godly. We need to put away pride. We need to cut off the thing that we lust over. We need to recognize when we're greedy. We need to recognize when we're lazy. We need to read scripture daily. We need to memorize it. Dang it, we just need to be Christian. We need to be like Jesus. We need to call up a friend and meet him at Zachary's or Parthenon or Sunnyside Cafe once a month and just ask him how they're doing spiritually. Life is short. Eternity is long. Hell is hot, but God is good. Eternal life is forever, and people matter more than anything else. We just haven't been acting like it, but we can. You matter. Everything you do matters. 
and everyone around you matters just as much. Let's pray. God, thank you for every single person who's turned from sin to begin following Jesus here at Grace Church. Help us to remember that there is nothing more important than helping other people find their way back to you. Nothing. And God, I believe at different times in our life, every single one of us are distracted from that. Forgive us for the many ways in which we're distracted by temporary things, from working for those things that matter most, like our friends and neighbors who are distant from you. Remind us that we can't take anything with us into eternity other than the friends that we introduce to faith in Jesus on this side of eternity. Help us to look at people differently. Help us to love them differently. Help us to serve them differently. Help us to see them the way that you see them. Help us to leverage every area of our lives in full service to the kingdom of heaven. Help us to come to you with open hands. You are first in every area of our lives. Help us to love people the way that you love them. And I pray for every one of my actual personal friends who are still disconnected from you. And I ask that you would draw them to yourself. And I am volunteering to leverage my life in any way you see fit to be a part of their journey if that's what it takes. I ask for my friends to feel comfortable enough with me that they would want to talk to me about spiritual things. And when they bring it up, Just help me to keep the conversation going. My job isn't to save them, that's yours. But if you want to use me in that process, I am game. Put me in, coach. That's my prayer. If you're disconnected from God and you don't want to be running from God anymore, you believe that Jesus is the only one who lived without sinning against God and against others, that he is the wonderful God the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. And you do want God to forgive your sin and to take it out of your heart to give you a clean slate. Then just tell him, Jesus, forgive me and save me from my sin. Help me to follow you with the rest of my life. I am your man. I am your girl. I get your prayer. I am all in. Every chip in the pot, I'm yours. Can you make that your prayer? God, let your will be done in our lives so that your will can be done through our lives. There's a lot of amazing things you have planned for each one of us. Don't let any of us miss a single moment of the life you have planned. This is our prayer. We ask this in the name of Jesus, and we all say together, amen.